Hello, my name is Haley Dahl, and welcome to another episode of Green Exploration Rockford. Today, I'm speaking with Robert Wilhelmi, the Brownfields Redevelopment Specialist, and Kyle Saunders, the Director of Public Works, both working for the City of Rockford, Illinois. We will be discussing Rockford's environmental issues and how the city has been working towards a more sustainable future. Thank you guys for your time and joining me this morning. And uh, so, yeah, the first thing I would like to know is what motivated you to get involved in environmental challenges in Rockford. Can you please give me some background on your involvement, interest, and motivation? And what projects are you currently working on? And also, please introduce yourself as well. Uh, Rob Willemy, I'm the Brownfields Redevelopment Specialist for the City of Rockford and I was born and raised here in Rockford, um, left for four years, lived in Aurora, went to college, came back, and I've been here ever since. So, um, you know, when I came back to town in 2001, a lot of the projects that we have seen completed now or ones that are in progress now were just sky in the, you know, pie in the sky dreams at that point in time. And I started out on the private side working for a local engineering firm. Um, got involved in a lot of environmental cleanup type work of, of these Brownfields properties and always just felt that I could do more in-house. Um, you know, I could have more, more say, more pull, uh, more direction working for a municipality as opposed to being a consultant for a municipality. Um, opportunity came up for me to come over to the city in 2015 and I jumped on it and um, you know, like I said, a lot of those projects that were started back in the early mid two thousands, um, that we're seeing completed today, it's, it's very rewarding. So you're a part of that, both on the private and public side. Yeah, actually I just declared a minor for, um, sustainable cities, which is part of the college of urban planning. And that definitely, I feel like brought in the, I guess for lack of a better term, like needed spice for my civil engineering degree, kind of making it a more holistic look. Since I want to get into green infrastructure, this kind of brings mm. in more the economic and societal, those aspects of sustainability instead of just the straight up infrastructure, which I've really been enjoying learning about. So. All right, Kyle, would you like to Yeah. Introduce I'll introduce myself. So Kyle Saunders, I'm director of public works for the city of Rockford. Um, been with the city for 10 years, uh, full-time this October. Um, started as a summer intern. Um, so it's been a pretty crazy path to, to director. So um, I have worked in the engineering division, the water division, and obviously now oversee all three of our operating divisions. So engineering, street, and water. Um, I have a bachelor's degree in biology. Uh, secondary education from Rockford University. Um, I've got an MBA from Rockford University. I'm currently working on an organizational leadership master's at the University of Colorado. Um, 
obviously, um, you know, sustainability and green infrastructure and just kind of the way that obviously our operations can continue to become more sustainable um, is, is within our mission at Public Works. Um, you know, we, we are environmentalists, you know, from our stormwater team in engineering um, to certainly our water team, um, you know, obviously everything that it takes to, you know, produce, treat, and distribute water to, you know, the one of the largest um, groundwater utilities in the state of Illinois, um, environmentalism and, and sustainable and, and how we can improve our operations is, is on our minds every day. So I'm really excited just to kind of talk about the different things. I was actually kind of just preparing, um, you know, this morning and, and last night on just kind of the different topics and they just kept rattling off. I guess, you know, all the stuff that we're doing certainly is in our, our strategic view, but um, it's kind of crazy to see them all kind of come to, to confluence here. So I'm, I'm excited just to hear a little bit about what, what Rob is doing. I know his work is huge on a, a redevelopment standpoint and, and obviously all of, of what he's done so far and in the past couple of years with Brownfields. I'm really excited to see how, as the city, we can highlight everything that we're working on, so. Alrighty, would you like to describe some of the projects you're working on currently? One of the projects, so obviously Brownfields redevelopment. I mean, it, it, in all, what it is, it's land recycling. and. We talk about environmental sustainability, whether that be on a pure environmental basis or whether that be a social or ecological basis. You know, ur urban infill redevelopment is what we strive for here. Um, you know, obviously urban sprawl into green spaces got to stretch out to the point where, um, you know, it, it stresses our budget, it stresses our infrastructure and our ability to maintain it. Um, so putting focus back into our urban core is Pretty much what I do. Um, you know, we've got uh, what was it, two seven hundred brownfields in the city of Rockford that were identified in a recent inventory that I completed back in two thousand one. These are uh, parcel specific, but um, you know, some of the major ones we're looking at now are the Barbara Coleman Complex on South Main Street. You know, seventeen acres, almost a million square feet of space um, since. 2001, we've spent about $3 million in environmental cleanup funds, um, assessing and cleaning up the property. And it's all in a, basically an effort to make it uh, more marketable for redevelopment. You know, when you take away that environmental uh, stigma associated with a facility like that, um, it attracts development, especially nowadays where you have more um, open-minded developers that aren't afraid to invest in these properties that are blighted and, and may have some environmental issues with them. Um, it's, it's just a win-win for everyone. Uh, another project I got going right now is our historic Rockford Watch Factory building uh, built in 1975, right next to one of our most successful brownfield redevelopment projects, the UW Sports Factory. Um, you know, we recently spent $150,000 in grant funds to abate all the asbestos out of the building. And once again, it's, it's one step that we can take um, to not only offset those development costs, but, but also make the property more marketable, attractive uh, to, to developers that have the horsepower to do something with them. I always wondered about that because Rockford definitely has a tendency to develop outward especially with a lot of abandoned buildings you know in the inner city and 
I always wondered why they didn't spend more time trying to like, revitalize those buildings instead of just, you know, building outwards and covering more farmland and natural land when we have so many buildings available in the city. But. A lot of it was, you know, you look back in a lot of when, when the sprawl was happening in the late 80s throughout the 90s even in the early 2000s, and it was just easier for developers to take a green space and develop it instead of, um, you know, all the potential issues with, with land recycling. I mean, you walk into an old industrial property, you don't know what you're going to find. Um, there's always going to be surprises. You know, you're looking at demolition costs, you're looking at, um, you know, just it, it was just offset. But nowadays, with a lot of the incentives that are out there, um, not only offered by, you know, the city, but also Illinois and federal government, you know, like the historic tax credits on both sides, um, even though some of the opportunity zone um, incentives out there, you combine TIF with that, and it starts offsetting that and putting a lot of focus back in, you know, the urban infill redevelopment. Definitely needs to be incentivized because people don't yeah. want to just spend extra money for the sake of sustainability. No, they don't uh, want to spend their money. <laughs> yeah, no, that is very true. That being said, Kyle, what projects are you currently working on? Yeah, so I, again, as I was preparing for this, I kind of looked at our, you know, our operation, kind of what we do in public works, and I kind of broke it down into three, three things, right, three phases. One, you know, sustainability in the way that we operate. Two, sustainability in the way that we plan. And then three, sustainability in, in the way that we strategize for the future. Um, and I kind of took a stab at each of our divisions. So, you know, when you look at our, our water division, um, the way that we operate just is inherently sustainable. Uh, back in, in the late 2000s, we invested $75 million in our, um, our water treatment facilities as well as our distribution network. Um, and we, we transitioned from kind of a more antiquated you know, just, just continued pumpage um, model where now we're kind of more of a just-in-time or on-demand operating strategy. So, um, you know, as demand goes up, as, as more people are using water, you know, we have VFDs on our pump that obviously ramp up to meet that demand. Um, you know, in the middle of the night when people are sleeping and people aren't using water, those VFDs will tune down so that we're not just constantly operating at high system pressure and really running our plants, um, you know, at, you know, redlining our plants like we used to do in the past. You know, we had really rough starts, really rough stops, um, and we had a lot of cycling, which obviously is not sustainable from an operational standpoint, certainly drives up your energy consumption um, and really is, is wasted resources, right? Because you don't need to pr provide 95 pounds of pressure 24 7 365 so um you know that that has been a huge way in which we've transitioned our operations in our water division um the other thing in in in, in the water industry as a whole water loss is a huge thing in the water industry um and, and obviously we're not gonna i'm not gonna dig into to you know that whole construct of water loss but really the the, the biggest or, or one of the two aspects of water loss is real leakage right real loss um City of Rockford Water Division was founded in 1875, and we still have water mains in service that, that predates 1900. So um, we do have real loss out there. We do have a leakage. Um, and for years and years, obviously, we operated uh, under the mindset of, hey, when it breaks, we'll dig it up, we'll fix it. Obviously, you know, we're going to try to replace it as soon as we can. Um, but back in 2016, 
we made a concerted a concerted choice to transition to more of a proactive or offensive approach to water loss. So we've implemented a water loss control program where we are uh, looking to, um, we do about 25% of our water system per year. So roughly 200 miles of acoustic leak detection. So we actually go out and proactively survey our system to find small leaks before they become huge leaks. Um, and obviously what that does is is it reduces water loss. It reduces the um, energy, the chemical cost, the labor cost that it takes to produce that water that's ultimately going to leak, reduces our overtime expense, and certainly um, you know, makes our service reliability much higher. So again, just from an operating standpoint in our water division, we've really taken, um, we've really taken grasp on being more sustainable, being more proactive. Um, in our street division, um, you know, and again, public works, I feel like I'm, I'm I've got like nine hours of material here, but um, you know, our street division uh, houses our forestry group. And each year we have a reforestation program. So people forget, obviously we are the forest city. Uh, people forget just how many trees, urban trees we've lost over the last 20, 25 years. Um, you know, with emerald ash borer, with you know, um, elm disease, we have seen a lot of, of our more mature urban canopy uh, be um, removed over the last two decades. So um, our forestry team, we have a, a team of certified arborists that obviously go through our city and, and strategically uh, replace um, some of our, our trees that we've lost. So obviously with much more sustainable species that are gonna be able to withstand you know, the, the climate here and, and hopefully stay healthy and, and, and are not susceptible to disease. But again, the, the benefits on the stormwater side, the benefits on the air quality side, you know, reforestation is so important. It's certainly a sustainable um, effort that, that our street team is taking on. Um, and then lastly, just on the operation side, and again, I, I can talk a little bit more about kind of some of our longer term planning. Um, in our engineering group, we truly have a group that is solely focused on, on environmental um, work. You know, our stormwater group, they maintain an MPDES MS4 permit. So obviously their number one goal every single day is to make sure that the water that we're releasing, the stormwater we're releasing um, into the river um, meets both our water quantity and our water quality standards. So um, we wanna make sure that we're not, um, we're not discharging you know, too much silt and sediment runoff. Obviously any type of, of pollution um, from you know, industry, you know, we're doing a lot of industrial inspections, you know, making sure that you know, we're, we're monitoring non-point solution or non-point pollution um, that's entering our stormwater network. So, you know, every single day they're out there ensuring that whatever we discharge into the river, um, make sure that that water quality is, is safe and, and we're certainly not negatively impacting everybody downstream. So again, a huge thing that, that our engineering- Has anyone that you know of within your engineering group been talking about the project of Keith Creek with the Greenway? Yes, so we're actually a, obviously a key stakeholder in that. And there's two things going on with the Keith Creek corridor. Obviously we've got the, um, the, um, the SPR grant that's looking at corridor redevelopment. Certainly there's water quantity um, considerations there because you know, obviously before we can redevelop the, the corridor, we'd have, obviously have to make sure that we reduce you know, the chance of flooding into the future and making sure that that channel can handle uh, significant storm events. Um, but one thing that we're also doing is we've actually partnered with um, a group that's looking at a section 319 grant as well for that Keith Creek watershed. So obviously focusing much more on, on non-point pollution 
and obviously the water quality side with Chief Creek. So yeah, we're our stormwater team is actively engaged with both sides of, of that project. So we're we're really excited to be a part of that and seeing that advance because that's a huge huge part of our, our future planning efforts. So so as far as my knowledge, that creek is pretty heavily paved, correct? At least the parts that I've seen of the creek, it's in concrete channels. How do you make that better for flooding? Because I know that's not necessarily ideal. Yeah, so obviously, um, Keith Creek has a huge part. Um, you know, we have a lot of different structures along the Keith Creek watershed. You know, Alpine Dam, right, is one of our biggest flood control structures upstream that really controls flooding downstream. Um, and just to kind of give a plug right now, we're uh, actively working on uh, a three and a half million dollar project to uh, renovate and rehabilitate the Alpine Dam. You know, that's a structure that um, was built during um, the New Deal. Um, so it's structure, I think it was finished in 1942 and hadn't been touched for almost 80 years. So, you know, we're, we're really bulking up that concrete spillway, modernizing how that gate mechanism works. Prior to this project, we actually had to have staff go and, and turn that that gate and I think it was it was like a, a quarter inch for every 10 turns it was crazy but um, we now have remote control of that gate so you know from our desk or from our our operations center we can actually control that gate to make sure that we're monitoring flood conditions so that's a huge part um, a lot of that channel is native stream bed though um, you know if you look at the Keith Creek corridor that that um, SPR grant is looking to study they've got concrete walls but it's native stream bed so we are we're looking at obviously you know how how do we best handle that channel are we going to meander that channel how are we going to reinforce the the banks um, we've done a lot of work over the last several years um, with um, articulated concrete block to really um, stabilize a lot of our banks along Keith Creek so we're looking at all those different things um, when you talk about concrete channels, obviously that was a, a best management practice. Um, it still has a, a role to play in how we engineer our, our stormwater management program. Um, one thing that, that concrete channels do help is obviously low flow conditions, right? It kind of helps prevent silt and sediment runoff because you've got that, that concrete channel that can kind of handle that flow. Certainly during significant rain events, it, it, will, um, it will increase velocity and, and certainly create some challenges with that. But it, we're kind of looking at all the different applications, you know, making sure that, you know, if we are recommending one BMP over another, um, that, you know, we, we understand why we're recommending it and, and that it, it fits the best, you know, it fits that situation. Um, so, and, and to, to build on your point, Haley, you know, I was going to talk about our planning. Um, so I'll just get to that on the, the green infrastructure side, but you know, looking at vegetated bioswales, looking at rain gardens, you know, looking at um, stormwater planners in our more or urban areas, you know, we are now taking that next step in our stormwater management to really make sure that whatever we're installing is, is going to be more sustainable and, and really helps us push push forward, so. Yeah, that's, that's good to hear. And the one thing that I also really love about green infrastructure, just besides the services that it can provide. I just feel like it enhances the community so much as a whole. It just makes everything look nicer and people want to be out there more. It's opportunities to implement more parks for the communities. So I'm really excited to hear that Rockford is taking the steps towards implementing those. That being said, I would like to know how you both define environmental challenges 
and how those environmental challenges, how would you define the parameters of the environmental challenges in Rockford specifically? So whoever would like to go first. I think from, from a Brownfields viewpoint, you know, obviously you look at Brownfields and you look at these large urban areas affected by them. And I mean, there's really four, four parts affected. There's, there's just social impacts, there's economic impacts, health impacts, and then just environmental impacts and which are all negative. And, you know, I look at, for instance, I look at the Barbara Coleman complex and use that as a prime example, especially for Southwest Rockford. And, you know, the facility was, was built in 1902 at one point in time, employed upwards of 6,000 people, which is huge. Most of them Southwest Rockford residents. You know, when the recession in the 80s hit and they started cutting, eventually the company was sold and cut up and, you know, the facility was finally decommissioned, I would say, in, in 2001. And, I mean, it, just a huge impact on Southwest Rockford. You know, property values went down. You had a lot of these legacy residents in the neighborhood move away with the reduction in property values that obviously brought in crime. And it's been an uphill battle since. But like I said, we're, there's a lot of steps we've taken in the last five, 10 years to reverse that. And it's probably still another five, 10 years before we you know, see the fruitful benefits of all that work. But I mean, that's kind of kind of what I see from the Brownfield side. So when it comes to the Brownfield sites in Rockford, what are the ways that they can revitalize that land to make it you know, usable to the public in the future? So with most properties, um, the path that we go down is the, the Illinois EPA has what's called a voluntary cleanup program. And it's called the site remediation program. And basically what it is, is the Illinois EPA provides oversight. And there are certain cleanup objectives that you have to meet. And at the end of the day, once those cleanup objectives are met, um, the EPA issues what's called a no further remediation letter, um, which basically says, you know, there's no more exposure pathways. You know, the property is, is, is safe given these conditions. And within that NFR, I mean, there's a lot of different avenues. Obviously, you know, the first thing we do is, is we usually do what's called a comprehensive enrollment, which we sample and test for about every single contaminant that you could possibly come up with on a property. And then, the state does allow certain levels of contamination to remain in place and naturally attenuate. So if, if you can't meet those certain levels of contaminants, you know, there are some, some options that you can go down as long as you take away any sort of human or environmental exposure pathway. And, and sometimes, you know, sometimes the key to cleaning up a property is actually the redevelopment of that property. And what I mean by that is sometimes you'll have, you know, for instance, Barbara Coleman, we've got, uh, shallow contaminants, polynuclear, aromatic hydrocarbons, metals. So you have to look at, okay, how, how can I remove someone from being exposed to that shallow soil? Uh, a lot of times like a parking lot is a solution or a couple feet of clean fill is a solution. So, you know, you can easily take that and design that into the site design of the project and address the environmental contamination as a component of that. As far as groundwater goes, you can either treat it in place, that can be very expensive if the contaminant levels aren't that high. Natural attenuation, they'll have you model it and see the full extent. And 
you know, basically you can put a deed restriction on the property or the city has an ordinance that says no private water wells can be installed. Um, that's a way to remove that exposure pathway. So there's, there's a lot of, um, you know, efficient means to cleaning up a site. It, it, it doesn't mean you just have to go in and dig out every single ounce of contamination on that site, which obviously reduces the cost significantly as well. So when you were talking about putting parking lots as a way that could help redevelop the brownfield sites, would that only apply to non-permeable concrete or would permeable concrete work as well? Because I know that, especially in regards to urban sprawl and water regeneration, mm -hmm. permeable concrete is definitely the more sustainable option. Definitely more sustainable. The EPA recognizes, obviously for pavement, it's, it's asphalt or concrete. However, they will, um, and I have seen them use permeable systems. Um, usually there's some sort of like geotextile under, underlying layer or something like that, but they do allow for um, a tier three evaluation where they will review um, an alternative proposed engineered barrier and they're pretty good at accepting those. Like I said, as long as you can document that someone's not gonna be actively um, being exposed to that source. Um, mm -hmm they're pretty open to those. Alrighty. So is there anything else you'd like to add there or? I think I got everything there. Alrighty. So Kyle, how would you define environmental challenges and the parameters of the environmental challenges in Rockford? So Obviously, Rob, I mean, I think Rob did a great job defining all, all the different characteristics of, of environmental challenges and how they impact our community differently. Um, you know, from a public works standpoint, I think, and, and again, I could, I could go on and on about stormwater because, you know, certainly we are seeing a, a much um, heavier um, influence or impact on stormwater, right? I mean, we're seeing increased um, frequency and, and significance of rain events um, that are obviously putting some pressure on, on existing stormwater um, infrastructure. Um, so obviously we're pushed in that group to, to ensure that, that our system can meet both the water quality and the water quantity standards for our community. But one thing that really stood out to me uh, was probably more on the water side. And that's obviously the kind of emerging um, contaminants and the ever-changing regulatory world as it relates to providing safe drinking water. Um, you know, obviously in the, you know, the, the early 2000s, our community faced um, coming into compliance with the radium, the new radium uh, nuclide standard. Um, and we, you know, implemented um, horizontal pressure filters and, and a pretty, um, you know, uh, technological uh, treatment system throughout our community. So that, that was huge. Um, and, you know, that's evolved to, to obviously VOCs. Um, you know, we're looking at um, obviously how, you know, how our, our existing treatment plants can handle 1,4-dioxane, um, you know, PCE, TCE, because, you know, as, as Rob mentioned, you know, we're dealing with a lot of those, um, those chlorinated solvents on the, the freshwater side as well. So we have to obviously treat for that. But one of the really big things that obviously our community is, is uh, planning for right now is how to handle PFAS, right? So, um, you know, PFAS is huge for us. Um, you know, the, the state uh, EPA did a statewide survey trying to kind of quantify um, the, uh, the concentration as well as the, um, 
the um, the presence of PFAS throughout the state of Illinois. Um, you know, Rockford, we, we did um, find um, very low level DTECs in some of our wells below the health advisory limit that obviously EPA is looking to, to establish. But, um, you know, that's a, that's, a, that's a contaminant that's gonna ebb and flow a bit for us here in the, the near term. Uh, we do have one well that's located in very close proximity um, to the airport. And obviously we know that one of the, and, and certainly not all of the, but one of the uh, possible sources of PFAS in drinking water is um, AFFF firefighting foam. So really, you know, you see a lot of it near fire, you know, near airports or um, military bases where there's a lot of training exercises going on. So, you know, we're monitoring closely um, a lot of our, our raw water uh, sources to ensure that, you know, we've got eyes on that, um, you know, the, the state has not established a rule yet. Um, you know, they've certainly provided guidance in terms of what they think that rule is going to look like. But, you know, as that, as that um, rule goes through their rulemaking process, or that MCL goes through their rulemaking process, you know, that's going to be something we're going to have to monitor very closely. Um, because, you know, adding a, um, you know, whether it's a reverse osmosis or a GAC plant, you know, trying to, to take that next step in terms of how we treat our drinking water is going to be huge for us. So, you know, right now we're working on a bit of a pilot study um, and we're preparing a project plan to the EPA so that we can secure uh, possibly state revolving loan funds, you know, in the event we had to construct a treatment plant. But again, then it's looking at, okay, do we want to treat for PFAS or, you know, do we, do we look at, you know, drilling our wells deeper and, and, you know, treating for radium as you get into those deeper aquifers. So, you know, the constraints are, are certainly there. You know, there are, there are both operational constraints as well as obviously financial constraints. Um, you know, adding a, a significant uh, GAC treatment plant or even a, a pressure filter, I mean, you're talking five, six, seven, eight million dollars and, you know, drilling a, a well in addition to that, you know, adds significant cost to the way that we operate in the water division. So we're monitoring, you know, the ever-changing regulatory environment, especially as it relates to our water group. So that's probably one of the, the biggest things that, that we're monitoring as a department right now. So to aid the viewers, do you mind explaining what PFAS is? Yeah, so they're, they're um, long chain perfluorinated substances. So they're long hydrocarbon chains that are oftentimes solvents based um, uh, from um, kind of water uh, phobic products. So uh, Teflon, um, Scotchgard, again, AFFF firefighting foams. There are a lot of times um, products that help um, in waterproofing. Um, so they're found everywhere in our environment. Um, I believe they were, um, they, they kind of went into commercial production back in the 1950s. Um, mm -hmm. they, they are considered forever chemicals, so they don't break down. They kind of just change change form, right? They kind of stick with you, you know, inside the human body and, and they're, they're literally found in everything. I think they're finding it in, you know, and again, I heard the stories just from all of our, our different resources in the water industry, but, you know, they're seeing it in polar bears' blood. Uh, they're seeing it in the, you know, the blood of newborns. I mean, it's, it's, it's very prevalent um, and it, it just doesn't break down um, naturally. So, um, you know, they're looking at how they're going to address that in the wastewater streams. They're certainly looking at how we're going to dispose of it, you know, from a treatment standpoint, you know, as you use adsorptive um, treatment technologies like granular activated carbon, obviously it's difficult to uh, dispose of that after it's been, you know, wasted. So they're looking at a lot of, uh, you know, holistically on, on how the water industry and, and really how the environmental um, 
sector is going to handle PFAS. So. I actually remember in my environmental science class that I took at Rock Valley about Teflon and how that got everywhere and it really affected this Appalachian community. And I remember hearing something about how the majority of people have Teflon in their bloodstream at this point, which is crazy. I was gonna say, I think I totally murdered the, uh, the, the definition, but perfluorinated substances, and I think they, they have so many different compounds. There's PFOA, PFAS, um, there's, a, there's a ton of different compounds that obviously the state was monitoring and, and looking to establish kind of advisory limits for on the, the drinking water side. So yeah, it's, I think Dark Waters was another documentary that- Yep, uh, that very they, good. Yeah, that they just recently uh, released that I think talked about DuPont and, and how you know the whole chemical or how that whole product was kind of commercialized back in the 1950s and certainly some of the environmental impacts of it. So um, it's definitely, you know, in, in the water world, you know, whether it be microplastics, whether it be pharmaceuticals, whether it be, you know, PFAS, 1,4-dioxane, radium, uh, VOCs, um, you know, it, it's the contaminant du jour that obviously our sector has to respond to. So it's, it's definitely a challenge, but we're definitely up to it and understand why, you know, why things are being considered. So. Alrighty. Is there anything else that you guys would like to add before we move on? I think Rob's the expert. So Rob, what did I mess up with my PFAS uh, description? What did I miss? Because you- You got it. You got it. Just, you know, very, very persistent <laughs> characteristics, kind of like polychlorinated biphenols or even like DDT, where it just, it doesn't break down, you know, absorbs in body fats. And, um, you know, there are studies showing detrimental health effects from high levels. It's honestly so uncomfortable to think about how much toxins are in the products they get pushed in our day-to-day -day lives. Well, and it's, you know, the crazy part is I, you know, in the water world, I could have talked about a lot of things, lead, right? I mean, lead yeah. is a huge thing. And um, I just, I thought of, um, I just thought of how far we've come as a community on lead service line replacement. Um, you know, I, I said that the city of Rockford was formed in 1875. I mean, we, you know, we're an old utility. We're, we're very typical of a, a Chicago, a Philadelphia, a Boston, maybe not quite as, as old as Boston, but, or Philadelphia, those are, those are like pre-1800s, but, um, you know, we, we did install lead service lines uh, up till about the 1950s. And, um, you know, right now we're estimating that we have anywhere from 15,000 to 19,000 lead service lines within our, our system, um, you know, back in 2016. Um, with, you know, obviously Flint and, and all of the, the concerns that, that came into the drinking water sector as it relates to lead, um, we took a very proactive approach. Um, one, you know, we have a lot of, of, of things on our side as it relates to lead. Our, our source water is groundwater. It's naturally hard. So you have a lot of calcium and magnesium in, in the, our raw water that obviously helps form a scale on the inside of our pipes that, that prevent lead and copper from leaching into our drinking water. Uh, two, we feed a food grade polyphosphate at our treatment plants that obviously adds to that scale and, and again helps prevent um, lead and copper from leaching into our drinking water. And we also are in uh, phase three, uh, year five of a lead service line replacement program. And, and really we're focusing um, our efforts on high risk lead service lines. So the lead service lines that are disturbed. Um, understand that you know, lead service lines, lead is bad, right? We want to get the lead out, but um, a lead service line that has been in service um, has never been cut, disturbed, or otherwise uh, impacted 
uh, with the, the scale and with water quality management practices, um, we have seen that, that water moving through those pipes can actually have a, a lead concentration below detectable limits. So, you know, um, water is the universal solvent. If it sits on anything for an extended period of time, it's going to dissolve that into it. And obviously it's going to be a, a result of, of the water quality there. Um, so we're, we're really excited. We've, we've secured more than $10 million in, in principal forgiveness money to replace lead service lines. So um, again, I, I, I wrote down a bunch of stuff that I could go on for hours on public works. But, uh, <laughs> our, our water group is really forward looking and I'm really excited with everything that we're doing with that group, so. Yeah, yeah. I, uh, I feel like we've already touched on this, but like what environmental challenges has Rockford struggled most with in the past? It sounds like, you know, they have a history, especially due to their industrial uh, past that, you know, brown fields are an issue. Obviously the water is an ongoing thing as well. Well, currently, what would you say is one of the most pressing issues, or not even just one, but the most pressing environmental challenges for Rockford currently, and how has this changed or evolved? How and why? I would say, I would say our brownfields are still one of our most pressing challenges. And, you know, obviously, you know, it's a double-edged sword, you know, Rockford with its rich industrial heritage. You know, we were a Mecca center. I mean, Rockford was huge. It was known worldwide for its industrial output. And, you know, with the recession of the 1980s and the economic downturn, um, factories moved away. And even into the 90s, when factories started pulling up, moving out of the country. And look what's left here. I mean, we've got acres and acres of, of brownfield sites that are either potentially impacted or are impacted. Um, you know, obviously that takes funding to assess, it takes funding to clean up, and it takes a lot of resources to attract the right um, developer to a site uh, that's going to be comfortable working on it. So it's, like I said, it's something we've been very successful with getting EPA grant funds over the years to help address those challenges and help offset some of those costs. And, you know, the, the biggest thing, like I said, we're, we're reinvesting into our core. You look at you know, Kyle, how much was spent on North Main and South Main alone, just in road, roadway and infrastructure improvements? I mean, I, I believe in total, it was more than $50 million between the two. Yeah. Projects. And, and you look at what just that road infrastructure investment has done. I mean, it has completely cleaned up these areas and we're starting to see, especially South Main, um, start to come back. There's a lot of redevelopment interest. We've got, you know, the Embassy Suites Hotel, another one of our most successful brownfields redevelopment sites. That's a brownfield? Um, I just stayed is, there for yes. like the whole weekend the other day. Yep. <laughs> that, that was, was so uh, another project that I started on the private side and ended up seeing the benefits on the public side. But, you know, that alone was a, was an $85 million investment by Gorman and company. And, oh, wow. you know, you look at what that's done to the area and unfortunately, with the COVID pandemic, it slowed things down quite a bit, but we're seeing it pop back. And um, like I said, there's a lot of lot of redevelopment interest on South Main Street. North Main, we're starting to see it trickle in. We've got some very large brownfields up on North Main with you know the Essex Wire site and the former Atwood building, but you know, we're taking the right steps to get those addressed and um, attract that reinvestment back to North Main as well. 
Yeah, that, the Embassy Suites is definitely a beautiful hotel. That's <laughs> and the view off of the yeah. roof is it was really one of our cool. poster childs. It's amazing when you're up because you know you see pictures online of of aerial shots from downtown, but when you're actually up there and looking at it in person, it's it's like a whole oh yeah whole different perspective. Rockford is definitely a cute community to look at. Like, <laughs> I was gonna say, I'm I'm born and raised in Rockford. Literally, have never left. I went to Rockford Public School, yeah. Rock Valley College, Rockford College, and I worked for the city of Rockford. And I remember going up there for the first time, and, and that view, as well as the rails to trails view, when you're on that old uh, railroad trestle bridge, yeah, uh, it's a view that very few have ever seen prior to those two openings. I mean, you know, obviously those that worked in the, you know, the old Amrock building certainly got some views, but I guarantee it wasn't as beautiful and, and picturesque as, as sitting at the top of, of the embassy suites, um, just looking at the river. So I couldn't agree more. It's, I sit up there and it's really proud to be from Rockford just to see oh, yeah. how beautiful downtown and just the city is from those views. So and if you'd have been in that embassy suites building before it was redeveloped, it, it just makes you appreciate it that much more. Um, you know, the first time I walked through it, once they completed construction, it just, my jaw was on the ground the whole time, just because I knew what it was like before, you know, you got chipping lead paint everywhere, asbestos, um, you know, all sorts of, of challenges, both environmental and, you know, engineering wise as well. And just to see, how that all came together is it's definitely we're actually doing a at the u.s brownfields conference this fall we're going to be doing a presentation on that so. yeah it's exciting to see things like this going on in the community because it really you know facilitates that appreciation from the residents mm. i think now would be a good time to wrap up part one of this episode As always, I would love to thank Robert Wilhelmy and Kyle Saunders for sharing their valuable insight during part one of this discussion. I would also like to thank anyone listening in on this podcast, as I always appreciate your support of Green Exploration Rockford. I would just like to remind you to take whatever you learn from this series and consider how you, as an individual, can be a contributor to a sustainable future in your day-to-day -day life. And don't forget to not only show Mother Earth some love, but your fellow humans as well, each and every one of them, because all humans deserve to live in a quality environment. My name is Haley Dahl, and I am signing off. Stay green and stay exploring, Rockford.